This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. Your eyes on the times, you walk ready to speak up. But with so many problems, you're exhausted trying to keep up. This is the Church Politics Podcast, where you can get political commentary from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be conservative or progressive. We're trying to be Christian in the public square. And I'm black as heaven. I'm made in God's image. Nobody can change my settings. Hey man, cut off my knees and put it into my search. It's easy to sell your soul when you don't know what it's worth. With your no good and camp, you're listening to the and campaign's church politics podcast with Justin Givney, aka Bishop Cooper's grandson, and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason Dixon line, my play cousin, the right Reverend Christopher Butler. Okay, okay, I have I have a confession. Actually, I have I want to start off this with two confessions today. The first confession is that Christopher Butler is not here, and I know that's disappointing. Y'all just give me a little grace and I'm going to tell you what he's doing right now. And so it's it's good work. So hopefully you guys feel pretty good about that. But Chris is not with me today. I'm just going to be doing this solo. So I'm going to try to hold it together while he's gone. He will. He should be back next week. All right. But here's my second confession. And again, I'm going to ask for some grace here. I know all of you um, have never fallen short of the glory, but I, Justin Gibney, have. And so I'm going to ask for a little bit of grace and and hit you with this confession. I rarely wear my seatbelt on planes. Now, I always wear my seatbelt when I'm in a car. I don't play that. Y'all should do the same, too. That's serious business. But I rarely put my seatbelt on when I'm on a plane. I just want to be straight up about that. In my brokenness, I sometimes defy the flight attendant and I just don't buckle up when they when they tell me to. Now, that may be a very silly act of defiance on my part. I can admit that. But I just could never justify putting on a seatbelt on a plane. In my head, if this thing crashes, if this thing goes down, it's a wrap. What, what is a seatbelt going to do for me? Now, some of you say, well, you may run into turbulence, all that. I haven't been through that. But in general, it just doesn't seem like a seatbelt is going to do much on a plane. Well, later in this episode, I'm going to tell you how greed, incompetence, and a few other things have now convinced me that I should probably wear my seatbelt on planes. Okay, so stay tuned for that. So I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about Biden and his campaign speech at Mother, Mother Emanuel uh, AMC. And then I'm also going to talk about U.S. boxing's decision to allow biological men to fight against women. All right. We're going to get in all, into all of that today. But I'd like to let you know that the and campaign is super busy. We got motion. We got a lot going on right now. Um, I myself am, am headed to South Haven, Mississippi, which is basically just south of Memphis, because I'm going to speak at a leadership event uh, for the Church of God in Christ. Uh, That is one of the largest black denominations. I'm really excited to talk about 
uh, leadership to talk about what Christian need, Christian leaders need to be thinking about, need to be emphasizing in this day and age. So that's going to be fun. And as I just told you, Chris is out. Chris right now, Chris, along with uh, Reverend C.J. Rhodes, Reverend Oshabar Hardman, are uh, presenting at the Classic City Conference in Athens, Georgia. They're presenting on behalf of the Ann campaign. And I just want to give a shout out to Ricardo Smith, uh, J. Ricardo Smith. Uh, who who runs all that, man. A, a great brother does a great job with the Classic City Conference. If you're in Athens and you can't go, it, it may be over by the time you hear this. Make sure you go to that next year. Again, Jay Ricardo Smith does an excellent job with that. So make sure that you check it out. And as always, man, I, I want to give a shout out to all our patrons, all our supporters for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. We're not like any other podcast. Uh, we do this thing a little bit differently. All right. So if you're watching on YouTube, make sure that you like and subscribe. If you want to not just listen to this, but actually contribute to it, you can become a patron. You can go to patreon.com slash church politics and you can give so that we can keep putting out this content. This content is neither uh, cheap nor easy. And we want to make sure that we're giving it to you as much as we can. And the beauty of it is if you decide to be a patron on patreon.com uh, and 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 a monthly patron, then you'll get premium episodes. You'll get another episode. You'll get another segment, which we don't actually uh, put here on just, you know, to everybody. You'll be able to get that too. So there's something in, in it for you. I hope you would consider uh, contributing to this podcast if you really appreciate what we do. But you know what it is. I don't like to belabor the point. So go ahead and grab your Bible, get your mind right, and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but to think like a Christian. And as always, I want to start off with scripture. Today, I want to start off with Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22. All right. And it reads, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The church is sacred. The church is sanctified or set apart. We know that ultimately the church is the people, as Ephesians 2 indicates. But that doesn't mean that the physical meeting place is without significance. That doesn't mean that the tabernacle, the temple or the sanctuary should be treated without proper regard. What I'm trying to get out here is there are certain things, in my opinion, that shouldn't happen at a church. Um, although the church is not apolitical, it must have clear boundaries when it comes to politics and especially partisanship. So I want to get into that a little bit today. Those who really follow the Ann campaign, y'all know that 
I broached this subject on uh, the and campaign civic updates this week. And what I was talking about was President Joe Biden's campaign speech at Mother Emanuel AME in Charleston, South Carolina. And so I want to expand on uh, that civic update. And if you want to see it, you can you can go to Instagram. I think you can go to YouTube. But I want to expand on what I said in that very short civic update. The beauty of the civic updates, whereas this is a long form conversation, you're going to be about 30, 45 minutes here. Um, that's you know, you're going to get that in five to 10 to 10 minutes. Uh, and so that's that's the difference. All right. But let's talk about this. Joe Biden gives a campaign speech at Mother Emanuel. But let me start here before I really get into it. I, I would be remiss not to say that Mother Emanuel AME Church has been an excellent and faithful example of what the church should be in the public square. All of you may recall that on June 17th, 2015, a young man named Dylan Roof entered into that church when they were having Bible study. And although Dylan Roof was a young white boy who probably didn't look like most of the congregants that went to that church, they they welcomed Dylan Roof with open arms, just like the church is supposed to do. And so as I understand it, Dylan Roof sits there and he listens to this Bible study um, with the people that invited invited him into it. And then later, towards the end, he stands up opens fire in the church and kills nine people on that day. And if you remember it clearly, obviously what happened at that church on that day shocked America. It showed us that the spirit of white of white supremacy that we thought that some of us thought, I should say, was long gone is still with us to some extent now. It really called on us to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, who are we and how can we change? Maybe not everybody had that thought, but I know many people certainly did, or at least they should have. All right. But to me, what was most extraordinary about what happened with all these events, even in the sadness and all that was going on, was that this congregation came together and publicly forgave Dylan Roof. Forgave him. After all that they had been through, after all that they had suffered, after losing loved ones, they came together and forgave him. Now, the black church uh, tradition of social action was still in place. This didn't mean that they stopped fighting against white supremacy. This didn't mean that they weren't going to go into the public square and try to ensure that this never happened again. But they treated him as Jesus treats us. They showed that they truly believed that they had to love their neighbor and love their enemy and that everybody was redeemable. From what I can tell, they were hoping that maybe one day he'll see the light and be saved himself. So that's a backdrop. And that's why I have the utmost respect for Mother Emanuel AME and what they mean to the church, what they mean to this country, really. That's the backdrop. But again, we're talking about Joe Biden and his appearance at that church. And that appearance, that campaign speech, wasn't without controversy. Um, 
One of the main points of controversy was that at a couple points in the event, the audience started cheering inside the church for more years, for more years, meaning we want him to win the election. We want him to be the president for four more years. OK, the implications are pretty clear there. And so I want to I want you to take a look at I watched the whole speech. I'm not going to show you all the whole speech. You can go look it up. But I want to show a couple clips of the speech. So the first time that they chant four more years is at the beginning of the speech. And I want to show that. Show that clip one right now. Thank you. Please. Thank you. It's going to go to my head, please. All right. So we see um, Joe Biden being, you know, cheered on and, and, and they're saying four more years. They want him to win. Now, here's the second time that we hear the, the audience screaming four more years. And this time it was sparked by a protest from this darkness. If you really care about the lives lost here, then you should honor the lives lost and call for a ceasefire in Palestine. Ceasefire! 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 That's all right. That's all right. That's all right. That's all right. So those clips and that chant are kind of the heart of the controversy. And as I'm sure you can imagine, you probably saw for yourself in a lot of different Christian circles. There was a lot of talk around this. A lot of people were rendering a critique as they should. You know, there's nothing wrong with people having something to say. And I don't care what your identity is. If you have a critique of something that's fair and constructive, I think you get to say it. I think people need to hear it. OK, so it is what it is. Um. But as always, I think some people took this as an opportunity to kind of absolve themselves. And so you had a lot of kind of MAGA evangelicals that use this to say, you guys talk so much about how we support Trump, but look at the black church. They're supporting Biden basically in the same way. The Biden black church relationship and the MAGA evangelical Trump relationship is pretty much the same thing. Others went so far as to even say, yeah, you accuse us of Christian nationalism. This is Christian nationalism. I'll get into that a little bit later. But let me let me address the first part. I think it is intellectually dishonest and it completely lacks context to try to say and compare this instance with what we've seen from majority evangelicals when it comes to Trump. Number one, Trump is a candidate that has broken almost every single rule. This, this is not your everyday candidate. This is somebody who has been unprecedented in how he's disrespected the system. 
and how he's disregarded the system and how he's disrespected people and how he's disregarded people. And the list can just go on and on. And whatever he does, he gets fully defended by some people in the church. That is not the same thing that we just saw. It pales in comparison. So I want to say that that's a lie, that those two things are not the same. As far as the Christian nationalism claim, I guess y'all don't really know what Christian nationalism is. Now, I will admit there are some people on the left when they're saying that um, majority evangelicals are Christian nationalists. Sometimes they use a bad definition, an overbroad, a lazy, very loose definition. Um, And I think that's wrong. Right. I think that's wrong as well. But let me give you a definition that hopefully shows you why this has nothing to do with Christian nationalism. And uh, Paul D. Miller, who talks about a lot, actually wrote the book on Christian nationalism, and he's actually been a guest on church politics. This is how he defined Christian nationalism. He said the Christian nationalism is the belief that the American nation is defined by Christianity, that the government should take active steps to keep it that way. Popularly, Christian nationalists assert that America is and must remain a Christian nation, not merely as an observation about American history, but as a prescriptive program for what America must continue to be in the future. The instance in the video that we just saw in no way fits that definition. These weren't people worshiping America or saying that uh, we should put the Bible away and read the Constitution, as we've heard in some other churches. Very much different. OK. But at the same time, because I do, I do think it was important to draw that distinction. At the same time, I don't want to get caught up in what I would call the cult culture war trap. All right. What is the culture war trap? Well, the culture war trap is. When somebody, one of your political opponents disagree with you, whether their conclusion is fair or unfair, and you get so defensive that you miss an opportunity for self-examination. So let me give you, let me apply that to what happened here. Because some MAGA evangelicals tried to come at the black church and, and say it was the same thing as the idolatry that we see with uh, with Trump and, and all the things they've gone along with with Trump. I could be so focused on disputing what they said that I don't step back, look in the mirror and say, OK. Was this right or wrong? What did we get right here? What might we have gotten wrong here? I'm so focused on making sure they know that they're wrong and they know that th- this is not the same, that I don't take the time to say, wait. Was this okay? You see, I think what the culture war does to us is it makes our main objective to merely prove that we're not as bad as the other side. That's really all our efforts do. As long as if Biden does something or somebody else does something and I can prove somebody on the other side did something worse, that's all I have to do. But let me tell you, Being not as bad as the other side, whichever side you're on, is the lowest of standards. It's a standard far below what any Christian should represent. 
So I want to be very clear about that. That's not okay. All right. I would be a hypocrite, as I said in the civic update, if I acted as if because this was a black church, it was above critique. If if I merely said that what happened at Mother Emanuel wasn't as bad as what I've seen in majority churches and my analysis ended there, I would be wrong. I would be a hypocrite and the and campaign wouldn't be what we say it is. We are here to urge the church to uphold a standard when it comes to politics, a biblical standard, a faithful standard. And if we're going to do that, if we're going to be who we say we are and have the purpose that we say we have, then we need to apply that standard impartially. I can't apply it different to people who I like or people who I don't like as much or don't hang around as much or don't identify with. And that's really all I'm trying to do here. So let me render my analysis on this specific uh, uh, campaign event. And here it is. Churches should not host campaign rallies for candidates. That's my opinion. They shouldn't offer up the pulpit to let politicians give their half-truths, pander and offer propaganda to the congregation and all the things that come with a campaign. Simple as that. So while this was not Christian nationalism, while this was not, in my opinion, equivalent to what we've seen some majority Christians do when it comes to Trump, it was partisan. And I don't think that was appropriate to have in the sanctuary. All right. Now, this does not mean that elected officials can't come to the sanctuary or can't speak in the sanctuary. I've seen churches do an excellent job of having platforms where uh, and 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 um, all type of different forums where politicians, elected officials come in and maybe they're one from both sides or maybe they're talking on a specific issue. Um, they can do that. Churches do different things. The black church is not a monolith when it comes to how they treat uh, elected officials. A lot of churches I know acknowledge them and that's it. But what I think we what I think all churches should have in in common, black, white or any other church, is that when a politician walks into a church, it should be clear that politics don't run that church, that politics don't sway that church, that the church isn't an agent of their political party, that all the lies and foolishness that come with politics don't fly in the sanctuary and the authority they may have or power they may have in their party or somewhere else doesn't control how we act in this place ever. That's what all churches should be able to make clear when a politician walks into there. And that doesn't mean they're being adversarial. It just means this is a different place that's set apart and you and your party don't run this. Now, the thing that gets me and, and the thing that upsets me a little bit is that Biden was able to use the sterling reputation and the sterling public witness of that church for partisan purposes. And whether you like a candidate or not, I do not think they should have access to that. Because I don't know any politician, I don't know anybody who's earned that type, that type of thing. And so it was not appropriate, in my opinion. 
in the partisan fervor. And we see why we, we I mean, if you look at what happened, you see exactly why it shouldn't have happened. We brought partisan fervor into a church and they end up shouting down protesters who are calling for peace. Now, whether you agree with these protesters or not, I would be very hesitant as a Christian to shout down somebody that was calling for peace. We can go back and forth on the on the the substance of what they were saying and whether we agree with it or not. But I would be very slow to shout them down with a partisan uh, chant. It's somewhere we got to pay attention to. And, and, and look, any of us being in that crowd in that moment might have fallen into it. I'm not you know, I'm not uh, uh, condemning the people. I'm just saying it shouldn't have happened that way. Now, I will say that generally when you interrupt the speaker in church, that's not okay. That's not acceptable to interrupt a speaker in church. And and the, the protesters did that. But when you bring partisan politics into the church, the terms of engagement change. And you might well anticipate that somebody might object to that partisan agenda, to the policies that they're promoting, and you might just get some protesters. Something to think about. I don't have any authority to try to enforce this around the church. That's not what I'm trying to do. But I am trying to say that's a standard that to me is consistent with what the church is and what it should mean in the public square. I'll be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. I, Justin Gibney, am back on the Church Politics Podcast. I am missing my homeboy, my play cousin, Christopher Butler. But again, he will be back and y'all will be able to hear from him and, and all that goes with that. Uh, maybe he'll even weigh in on some of these issues on the premium episode. But unless you're a patron, you wouldn't be able to hear that. So maybe you want to be a patron. This next story, I'm going to be real with you. I first heard about it and f- first heard the analysis from uh, Sagar Anjedi, who is uh, part of Breaking Points. And I've recommended that people watch that instead of cable news. But I think he gave a pretty good analysis. And I want to touch on it myself and kind of apply it to uh, how Christians should think. You may have seen the photos. You may have seen the videos. Uh, but apparently on January 5th, a Boeing, Boeing 737 plane with passengers in it had a large part of the side of the plane break off moments after the takeoff. This left a massive hole on the side, the size of an exit door on part of the plane where passengers sit. And we have the, if you could just show the, the picture of that right now, this is a massive hole in the plane. This plane opened up after takeoff. So these passengers are sitting there and part of the plane just falls off. Now, thankfully, nobody was sitting in those seats. But that shouldn't happen. I think we can all agree on that. Now, someone could have, from what I understand and would have, from what I understand, literally been sucked out of the plane if it had been further in flight and if it had been moving faster. Multiple people in that plane would have died because they would have got sucked out by the pressure. And I'm not a scientist, but y'all can figure out how that may work. Thankfully, 
they were able to have an emergency landing and they were able to avoid any deaths. But that could have easily been another tragedy. So you might be saying, well, why are they using these old planes that are falling apart? And honestly, that was the first thing that I was thinking myself. Why are you using a plane that the doors are falling off that thing? You shouldn't even be driving a car that the doors are falling off. How are you going to be driving a plane where the doors are falling off? Get some new planes. But I got news for you. That plane was new. That plane had only been used for about three months. It had only been in use since November 2023. Boeing is the largest aerospace manufacturer in the U.S. This was an Alaska Airlines plane, Alaska Airlines flight. The plane apparently had loose bolts in it. And I believe there was reason to know some of those bolts were were loose, but nothing was done about it. Now, the Federal Aviation Administration has ordered that those planes be grounded until further notice. So none of you will be riding in a 37, uh, 30, uh, 737, excuse me, uh, that might that might that might happen to you. OK, so hopefully we're OK for now. But if the plane wasn't old. Then why was it falling apart? Why did the midsection of a brand spanking new plane fall off. Now, I'd invite you to watch the uh, segment of, of Breaking Points that talks about this, but what I learned from Breaking Points was that Boeing recently had to pay the federal government $2.5 billion because of an attempt, because of an, uh, of an attempt to rush their 3730 plane to the market to beat competitors. And obviously, apparently in doing that, they hid some of the uh, technology from the FAA. They were trying to increase stockholder profits. Sager goes on to say that in the period between 2014 and 2019, Boeing bought back 60 billion dollars of its own stock. Some believe that those funds are better used to fund research and to fund development. Now, just so you know what a stock buyback is, uh, according to Investopedia, uh, a stock buyback or a, a share repurchase is a transaction whereby a company buys back its own shares from the marketplace. These repurchases reduce the number of outstanding shares, which is something that investors often feel will drive up the share prices. So what we see in this instance is in one and we already know that Boeing got in trouble because they were trying to rush this 737 out there. Right. They're trying to beat their market competitors. And then they continually are doing stock buybacks. But see, what happens when you do stock buybacks is you have to spend money that the company has to buy back the stocks. Now, your stockholders get more money, but you don't have the money that you could use to actually innovate, to actually make sure that your planes were safer. And so what we're seeing here is a company completely being driven, a company who has who serves a very important purpose in the United States, completely being driven by profit, by stockholder profit. Christian. Do you see how that could be a problem? In our economy today, 
It seems like increasing shareholder profits is the only objective for some of these larger companies. Not everybody. There's some folks with ethics and morals, but some people that seems to be almost completely what they're driven by. They often seem to do the bare minimum when it comes to safety and sometimes even when it comes to innovation, if they can get away with it for short short term gains. And to me, this is the same logic that was behind many American companies and others putting all of our, you know, pushing all of our industry overseas because they wanted to get an immediate profit. It didn't matter how that might affect people's jobs. It didn't matter how that might affect uh, the country's readiness or even its economy in the future. It's all about getting immediate profits for your shareholders. Do you see why that might be problematic? Do you see why that might have led to what happened on January 5th, where people could have died because you have a side of a plane falling off? on a model of the plane that they already got in trouble for rushing out to market too soon. And the sad part about it is it doesn't seem like we have a Congress or regulators who are really serious about doing anything about it, who are really serious about regulating this side of capitalism. Because whether it's capitalism, socialism, or anything else, all of these things made with human hands come with a very a downside, whether it's greed, whether it's entitlement, all of them come with a downside. And if we don't have elected officials who are willing to deal with that downside, who have, number one, the wisdom to know what the downside is, but also the conviction to make sure that it doesn't hurt people, then we end up in a really bad place. And let me say something to Christian corporate executives. And this is important. First, let me be charitable towards you, okay? Um, Because there are a lot of executives who've done a lot of good things, who have helped a lot of people, who have helped the economy, who have been innovative, and so on. Let me say that I can only imagine how much pressure you likely get to focus primarily or almost solely on shareholder profits. In a way, I would imagine that whether you are seen as a success or a failure is in large part based on that. And I'm sure as you try to succeed, as you try to do more things, it's not easy to get away from that standard or get away from that pressure. But I want you to keep in mind that stockholder profits should not be the primary objective of disciples of Christ. Your ultimate purpose is bigger than that. There will be something that you can do to make the stockholders more money, and in turn, you will be hurting someone, most likely vulnerable people. There'll be something that you can do to increase Stockholder profits that will decrease the safety or the flourishing of others. Again, usually vulnerable people, whether it comes to their housing, whether it comes to transportation, whatever. And you might even get away with it. But you have to be convicted and bold enough to go in a different direction. 
I don't know exactly what that might mean in your situation. It might mean being a real leader and being willing to rearticulate the organization's values and priorities so that you don't even go in that type of direction. So that we say, yes, we obviously know that stockholder uh, profits are important, but we actually have guiding principles that says we're more than that. Easier said than done, but I don't see another way for a Christian to participate. Or you might have to be willing in some instances, and hopefully not, to walk away. Either you must innovate in a way and lead in a way that leads your organization away from that type of thinking. Or if they're going to hold you to that, you may not be able to participate in the same way. You may not rise in the same way. And the question is, is you rising in that company? Is your reputation as a businessman or businesswoman more important than caring for people and actually having principles, standards, and ethics. Look, now you know why I will be wearing a seatbelt on planes moving forward. And hopefully, you'll consider your Christian convictions and not just your shareholders. We'll be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the Ann Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the Ann Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The Ann Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. I've got exciting news. The Urban Apologetics Summit is back on February 23rd and 24th in Philadelphia. Join gospel practitioners like Dr. Eric Mason and Jackie Hill Perry for an intimate, transformative experience at Epiphany Fellowship Church. Limited seats are available, so grab your tickets now at urbanapologeticsummit.com. Do not miss out. The Ann Campaign will be with you if you go. I am back on the Church Politics Podcast, obviously still missing my man, uh, Chris Butler. Um, this next conversation is, is, is somewhat frustrating, uh, but very complex too, complicated at the same time. So U.S. boxing, which is the governing body of the sport known as the sweet science. I love boxing. But U.S. boxing just announced a new and very controversial policy last week. Listen to this. Under the new rule, male boxers who transition or fully become transgender 
can compete against females as long as they meet certain criteria. So this this is not this doesn't go for for uh, young people, but adults can choose which category they want to box in. They can box against men or box against women as long as they fully complete gender reassignment surgery and participate in regular hormone testing. According to U.S. Boxing, this is this is their words. The purpose of this policy is to provide fairness and safety for boxers. Having biological men punch women in the face is the fair and safe thing to do. My friends, this is where post-science progressivism has led us. This is what happens when we follow words and concepts rather than common sense and truth. You see, what I know and what I've experienced is that some of y'all will go along with anything as long as the narrative seems nice and the word and words like fair, equality, progressive, equity and love are tied to it. But what you don't seem to get is that all those words and those concepts can be distorted. They can be perverted and made to serve something other than what's good and what's true. We do not follow words and concepts. We follow the truth, the truth of compassion, the truth of love and so on. The truth of biology. Those things matter. But don't, it doesn't, you know, how mad I get about this doesn't really matter. I know that's not going to persuade a lot of people. Why don't you listen to the women who actually are boxers and hear what they have to say about this? And so here's a quote from Ebony Bridges. She's the Bantamweight world title holder. And she said that this policy has no place in the world of boxing. Here's her direct, direct quote. I don't care about political correctness. It's politically incorrect to have a man fighting a woman. And I don't care. That's that's exactly what it is. This society is too soft. This is our health and safety. The girls need to stick together or women's sports in 50 years will be filled filled with male born champions. Later, she added the following post. It's bad enough to have trans women breaking records in other sports like track and field, swimming and powerlifting, but it's a bit different to have them breaking our skulls. In combat in combat sports where the aim is to hurt you, not just to break a record. It ain't just about the test levels. What about their bone density and a heap of other biological factors? Cutting your bits off and adding boobs won't take back the masculine maturity your body has gone through before you decided that you were a woman. Hashtag, I said what I said. The next boxer is Michaela Mayer. And she said this, by default, hormone therapy should make trans athletes ineligible for competition, period. Doesn't matter how you feel about the situation. Fact is, I guess, do facts still matter? Do they not? Fact is, 
It's illegal and completely disrupts the even even playing field that sports work to create. Again, you don't have to take my word for it. Those are some women who are going to be put in harm's way if they want to continue to compete based on this policy. All right. Now. I can't tell you how many Christians have come to me. Defending leaders who undermine the gospel because they're trying to be compassionate. Well, to me, and I think this is a good comparison, those Christian leaders in their search for compassion outside the Bible are just as unwise as U.S. boxing. They are embracing a distorted conception of compassion. They are leaning on their own finite understanding and rejecting the infinite knowledge of God. And they're both in both instances, they're wrong and they're dangerous. Look. I admittedly make some pretty blunt statements about transgender issues online. And I promise you, it's not because I lack the sensibilities to know what is considered polite in society today. It's not because I don't get it that you're not supposed to say that. Okay, it's not because I don't love and feel true compassion for transgender people and all the things they go through and all the ways that the church in some instances has sinned against them. I absolutely do. And if you look at my work, that's clear. But here's the thing. The truth has to matter. And sometimes the truth has to be stated plainly. And when Christians run from blunt truths as a false act of compassion or to save themselves from scrutiny, they're allowing the absurd to further take hold in our society. If I say that men can't get pregnant, it's not because I don't care about hurting somebody's feelings. I do. It's because I refuse to call myself a Christian and be afraid to state the obvious. What type of society will we be living in if Christians are too sentimental or too afraid to state the obvious? Let's hope we never have to find out. But I'm afraid that we already have. And camp, you know what it is. There's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Camp. I'll holla at you.